Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Research Seminar. We are just thrilled today that Anna Catalano Weeks, who is one of our fellows, um, is joining us here today. In addition to those of us here in the room, we have our podcast audience. Our seminar has been podcast and downloaded more than 18,000 times. So in addition to the dialogue we have in here today, we know that the work we do sends a ripple effect of dialogue across the globe. And here at the Women in Public Policy Program, our work focuses on closing involuntary gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And Anna Catalano Weeks um, is a graduate of Dartmouth, where she did her undergraduate work. She did her master's at the London School of Economics. She did her PhD and is currently a fellow over at the government department. Her work predominantly focuses on looking at the impacts of quota laws, particularly in the European context. And today she's going to discuss with us how these quotas impact outcomes on gender-related policy, particularly family policy, and given all the work that we do here in the center of closing political gaps, this is something that we're very interested in, and I want to say that she is a pleasure, both in her work and in the way she intellectually contributes to our community here at WAF, and with that, I turn it over to you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here today with you all. Thank you for having me um, sharing some of my recent research. Um, and what I'm presenting today is a chapter of my dissertation and book project that focuses on the impact of gender quota laws on policy outcomes, in particular work family policies. Um, and gender quotas, as I'm sure most of you uh, probably know, are electoral laws or sometimes constitutional provisions that require every political party in the country to include a certain percentage of women um, in their party lists. Um, so to give you a sense of what these laws are, what they look like, how they affect candidate selection, I want to start with a recent example. Um, so here you see candidate lists from the main right-wing party in Portugal, the PSD, before and after a quota law was implemented in 2009. And female candidates are highlighted in pink here. So you go from uh, one candidate on a list, which is a closed list, so um, there's you know, no preference voting here, um, to over a third of candidates on the party list being female in the course of just one election. Um, and in fact, the quota law in Portugal required that every third candidate be um, of the opposite gender, and they had to alternate um, on the party list in this manner. Um, so it looks like it was effective, um, and in fact, women's representation in Portugal increased from 21 to 27% in the course of just one election here. Um, and so my question is, so what? Does this matter to policy outcomes, or is this just kind of an uh, an interesting way for party leaders to curry favor with women voters, sort of window dressing without any real policy impacts. Um, and more broadly, the motivation of my research is the question of whether politician identity um, matters to policy outcomes. And, and more than that, because I think the research now broadly has a consensus around the idea that um, you know, politician identity does matter, that you know, parties and electoral incentives are important, but so is politician identity. But we really know far less about um, when politician identity is activated, so when it matters, under what conditions, and how it matters. So how exactly do um, more women or, or another sort of member of a, of a minority group, how do having more of these um, individuals 
actually translate into policy outcomes. Um, and, and particularly because uh, a lot of the research that's been done so far focuses on majoritarian contexts or executive level governance. Um, and in this case, it's, it's clear how individuals could have a strong impact on policymaking power, but, but not a lot of the work focuses on parliamentary democracies where individual politicians are really thought to have much um, less of a role in the policymaking process, right? Um, that said, in debates about quotas, you often hear this argument. So this is a quote from the debate about the quota law still in Portugal from Maria Jabalim, who is the former leader of the main left-wing party in Portugal. Um, and she says, women cannot stay out of setting priorities, defining the content, and defining the scope because they have skills that are essential for the improvement of these decisions. They have knowledge and experience that give a different order to priorities. So this kind of argument um, is made fairly often in quoted debates, even in this sort of parliamentary context where we really should think that individual MPs, backbenchers, um, really have fairly minimal role to play in the policymaking process. Um, and, and more broadly, I think the argument um, for what Ann Phillips calls the politics of presence isn't that gender is a guarantee, but just that um, you know, men and women have different experiences in life and, that give, and they're gendered and raised in class, et cetera. This gives rise to different priorities um, and that politicians are affected by these same sort of processes. So it's not a guarantee and certainly we can think of women who are anti-feminist, but women are more likely to act in, in women's sort of interests than are men. Um, this question is becoming more and more topical because even though we think of quotas as really super controversial in the United States, over 50 countries have adopted electoral quota laws, and this isn't including um, political reservations, which require women to be elected rather than just nominated, or um, political party quotas, which far more countries have also adopted. Um, and within my sample of advanced democracies, five countries in, my, in the time period I look at adopt a quota law, Italy, uh, Belgium, France, Spain, and Portugal. And actually, since the period I look at ends around um, 2012, two other countries, Ireland um, and then Italy again, uh, have passed court legislation. And I can think of a couple others that also have proposals on the table now. Um, and here's a good place to say that I'm focusing on advanced democracies um, only in this, in this study because um, my theory is very much dependent on women and men having different policy preferences. And we, this is kind of a well-known fact um, that in advanced democracies, women, and there are some things that women and men have different preferences on, namely, women prefer more spending on a range of social policies compared to men. And I'm gonna look at this um, in much more depth later on in the talk, but um, it's, it's not clear that these same gender gaps and policy preferences exist in developing countries. Um, and in fact, I find they don't for the major one that I look at, maternal employment. So um, because of this, because there are clear gender gaps in the context of advanced democracies, I focus only on these countries for this study. Um, okay, so just a brief outline of the rest of the talk, um, a preview of the findings. I'm gonna argue that quotas are especially likely to lead to policy change for issues that are characterized by gender gap in preferences, but which are also off the main left-right dimension in politics. And, and briefly by that, what I mean is that uh, policies that are not associated with or can't be characterized by the main um, class-based dimension in politics, sort of um, economic policies to do with redistribution and, and social spending. Um, 
I'm then going to argue that work-family policies fit both of these criteria, and I'll show you that the gender gap in preferences for maternal employment is in the order of about 10 percentage points on average across countries and over time, the largest gap that I see for any social policies. Um, and then I, I'll test this argument through both quantitative and qualitative analysis. So I'll look at spending outcomes um, on various types of work-family policies that, that are uh, hypothesized to increase and decrease maternal employment. Um, and I also will look at how quotas um, impact policy outcomes through a qualitative case study of um, Portugal and Italy. So that's really meant to focus on the mechanisms at work here. Okay, so just to put this question into the broader context of the literature, um, there's been a lot of literature on the sort of so-called first stage of quota adoption. Um, and this literature shows that quotas do increase the share of women in office. Um, and has to do with how well they're implemented, essentially. But there's been far less work on the second stage, um, how quotas impact women's substantive representation or women's policy concerns. Um, and so far, these have mostly been single case studies. Um, however, there is another large chunk of literature which suggests that gender matters to legislative behavior. So outcomes like legislative priorities, debate participation, uh, bill sponsorship, co-sponsorship, and to even a lesser extent, roll call vote outcomes. Um, you know, women prefer um, a certain set of, you know, women's policies that's defined differently you know, throughout the literature. Um, but the evidence that this translates into policy outcomes is, is more rare, I would say. And gender, um, our politician identity in general, or quotas, is not a determinant in the standard literature from political economy on spending or redistribution, um, with a couple of exceptions that, that uh, look at gender and um, overall social spending, mostly, rather than sort of specific policy outcomes. Um, one notable exception is the work of Chattopadhyay and Duflo um, <coughs> in India, where they utilize this neat natural experiment whereby quotas are actually randomized, or political reservations were randomized um, uh, across certain you know, local regional districts um, in India. And they do find that, in line with um, sort of theory that, um, that female leaders will invest in more resources that women favor. Here it's water and roads. Um, but it's, this is a very unique case, um, and it focuses on executive level positions, sort of mayoral positions in um, local politics in India. And it's not clear um, that the same um, outcomes will translate in the context of advanced democracies, particularly because in parliamentary democracies, um, parties, and their governments are really um, theorized to wield the bulk of policy-making power. Um, and, and this work also um, doesn't focus on mechanisms, so it has less to say about how these policy changes actually occur. Um, so this is the, one of the first studies of um, the impact of quota laws on policy outcomes across countries, and in particularly focusing on work-family policies. It's the only study that I know of. Okay, so any questions at this point? So my main argument, um, as mentioned before, is that after quota law policies are likely to shift in the direction of women's preferences, particularly for issues that are orthogonal or off of the main left-right dimension in politics. And by orthogonal, um, briefly, I mean that these issues aren't well described by the main class-based dimension in politics. Um, the economic cleavages between working and, and business class or upper class, so think of um, redistribution, government intervention, social spending more broadly. Um, 
and I'll get, I'll get into how I define this a, a little bit more later on. Um, but to, so to break this argument down in its constituent parts, the first part that quota laws are likely to shift policies in the direction of women's preferences should be um, fairly intuitive. Um, women face high barriers to entry in politics. Um, there's been a lot of research that suggests that um, uh, women face barriers that can include higher, higher cost to entry, um, discrimination in being selected, which doesn't have to be explicit, um, that there are differences in, in the political socialization of children, which affect girls' ambition. All of these um, factors mean that um, there's a blockage in the supply of female candidates, right? And so they're likely to be underrepresented. Um, this matters because politicians are biased towards their own interests. And increasingly, we see um, clues of this in not just the gender literature, but in other literature as well. So an example that I really like is Barry Burden's work in the US Congress, where he shows that smokers um, are much more likely to vote against tobacco control measures. So even learned behaviors matter to, people's experiences matter to their priorities, um, and, and even in elected office, even at the highest level. Um, okay, so in theory then, if we get more women, we should have more people who care about women's interests in politics, right? But this is likely to matter, I argue, especially for issues that are off the main left-right dimension. Um, yeah? Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm talking about social spending and redistribution are kind of the main left-right dimension mm -hmm. in European politics, yes. right? And I'm gonna make the case a little bit later on that work family policies are not on this dimension. Work family policies. Work family policies, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'll get there. I'm not quite there okay. yet, so ask me again if, I, if it doesn't sure. clear up. Okay, um, okay, so we might think of an example of an issue that is on the main left-right dimension, um, social spending. We know that women have distinct preferences on this issue, they prefer more social spending. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that women might need to be substantively represented, descriptively represented, in order to achieve policy outcomes for this. And, and so we can think of women's realignment um, in the post-World War II decades from right to left as one example of this. So they can just vote for the party that's aligned with their interests, in many cases the social democratic parties. Um, and there has been research to show that this has been effective in changing policies, Hubert Powell's research. Um, but for issues that are not well aligned um, with the main left-right dimension, there are um, reasons that parties would have little incentive to even bring these issues on the agenda at all in the first place. Um, so this is why I argue that quotas are especially likely to make a difference in this context. The first reason is that um, issues that aren't well aligned with the main left-right dimension in politics are likely to be cross-cutting. So they're likely to split parties' traditional constituencies to cause further divisions within the parties. Here <coughs> between women and men, parties want to avoid this. Um, the second is that these issues are likely to detract from owned issues. So parties can't focus on every issue. They already have a set of issues that they're known for. Um, and so they might not want to focus on other issues that fall outside of this arena. Um, and the third reason is that these reasons uh, that these policies simply may not be recognized by predominantly male party elites to offer electoral opportunity, and there has been previous research to show that male party elites just aren't aware of the electoral possibilities, the possible advantages of focusing on some of these issues that women in particular care about. 
Um, Quota solved this problem by requiring parties to include women who are more likely to care about these issues and be able to point out the electoral opportunities um, at stake here. So this is the main um, relationship that I test in this research, that quotas are likely to lead to policy change in the direction of women's interests, particularly for these issues that are not well aligned with the main left-right dimension in politics. Um, and so how might this change occur, given that I've spent a lot of time already saying that, well, individual politicians, backbenchers, may not have that much power in the policy-making process. There are two main mechanisms that I expect um, could mediate this relationship. The first is that quotas lead to increases in numbers of women in parliament, um, often abrupt and large increases. Um, and I hypothesize that, um, not that women are gonna band together across parties or gonna rebel against their parties to propose new policies, but that they're gonna act like any other faction within the party and that more numbers give them more leverage with party leaders. So more numbers give them more leverage to negotiate for their interests, um, just like any other faction or interest group within the party. The second possibility is that the quota and the debate about the quota law itself um, is likely to raise the salience of women in politics and women's issues in politics, um, cueing party leaders to focus on these issues in order to claim credit from female constituents. Um, so, and here it's important to, to know that oftentimes the quota is not a one-off debate, that it comes up not just when it's passed, but in subsequent elections time and time again, because inevitably parties have not been successful in achieving their quotas. And so there is a consistent debate in the media about which party is um, abiding by the quota, which parties aren't, who are these new women, et cetera. Um, so this is a sort of credit claiming um, mechanism here that party leaders are gonna be cued into the importance of these issues by the, the increased salience of the debate. And I test both of these um, mechanisms primarily through qualitative research um, field work. Uh, in the cases I'm gonna present today are in Portugal and Italy. Okay, so, so now I'm gonna, in the next slides, argue that work family policies fit both of these criteria, that they're characterized by a gender gap in preferences, quite a large gender gap, and um, that they fall off the main left-right dimension in politics. So this figure shows um, average gender gap, so the share of women who agree or, or disagree when stated minus the share of men who agree or disagree, and the column on the right actually shows the, the level of agreement for women. Um, and overall, it confirms what we already know from the literature on women's preferences in advanced democracies. They prefer more social, um, more spending on various social policies like unemployment, healthcare, more government intervention for things like poverty. Um, but, but what I want you to notice is the red bar at the bottom, which shows that by far the largest gender gap um, on, on these social policies has to do with maternal employment. And so the question text here reads, a preschool child is likely to suffer if his or her mother works. Uh, and on average, this is across countries over time, averaged about um, seven or eight surveys from 1990 to 2012 for 22 countries. 39% um, of women disagree with this compared to only 30% of men. And this is um, in order with the gender gap in, in similar questions that measure the same thing, like a job is okay, but what a woman really wants is home and family. Um, or um, I think there are some others that I can that I can see if we go to the appendix later. But the gaps in these questions are also along the lines of eight to nine percent. 
Did you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted you to say the percentages again. Yeah, so overall, this is across countries, and over time, 39% of women disagree that a preschool child will suffer, okay. compared to only 30% of men. And the trends have been um, that these gender gaps, the level of disagreement is increasing over time. So both men and women are, are becoming more progressive over time, but women are becoming more progressive more quickly. So the gaps are actually increasing over time. And I'll show you a little bit. Um, I, we can look at the time differences if you want um, a little bit later, but the, the gaps by country here um, will also shed some more light. So these are the average, the same average gender gap on the question about a preschool child will suffer by country. Um, and what I want you to notice about this figure is that there are significant cross differences across countries uh, in preferences towards maternal employment. Um, on average, the sort of social democratic and liberal welfare states tend to have the <coughs> highest um, gender gaps. These are countries where a large proportion of women are working. Um, so they suggest maybe there's some significant unmet demand um, for th these types of policies. But, but then in the continental welfare states in continental Europe, um, France, Belgium, Germany, uh, some of the countries aren't listed on this figure, but we can look in the appendix at the end if you want. Um, the, the gender gaps are smaller, more along the lines of 8 to 10%. And then if you look at Southern Europe and Japan, the gender gaps tend to be uh, quite a bit smaller. But even in this context, in Spain and Portugal and Italy, in the recent years surveys have been done, gender gaps are significant. And particularly, another thing to note is that if you look at, these gaps increase along with education. So if you look at highly educated men and women, the gender gaps increase still more. So the average moves from about 9% to 14 or 15% uh, gender gap. And that matters because the type of women who are likely to be elected to parliament are going to be higher educated. So it's in that another reason that they might particularly care about these policies. Um, this gender gap also persists across parties. Um, so this is sort of an initial piece of evidence that, okay, party doesn't seem to categorize, the, the, the left-right dimension doesn't seem to categorize these differences that well. So the bars you see here um, are the average gender gap within um, individuals who vote for the main right-wing party, the blue bars, and the main left-wing party in the country. Um, and on average, the gap is 11% um, for those, uh, the gender gap within left voters is about 11% compared to 9% for, for right-wing voters. Um, and then in the, in the paper, the book chapter this is based on, I sort of do a number of things to test whether this gap is actually off the main left-right dimension. And I'm just presenting um, one of the diagnostics here. I, I do um, both exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis to test whether the underlying dimensions for these issue attitudes are actually different than dependent. And I find that they are. So the figure you see here shows um, diagnostics from exploratory factor analysis, which um, includes questions that focus on um, redistribution and social spending. Those are kind of the ones you see on the y-axis um, there. And, and then maternal employment, which are some of the questions I mentioned earlier. And the factor analysis clearly shows that they form two different under, underlying you know, latent dimensions. Um, that these things, maternal employment and redistribution tend to be correlated with one another, attitudes towards these things, but, but not with each other. Um, okay, questions at this point? Yeah. So when, when I think about maternal employment, you could be thinking about a woman, a mom working nine to five and being home at a certain time of day, that sort of thing. You could also think about like in a 
differentiation when asking this question? Was there any sort of like the timing of thinking about a certain type of employment or anything like that? No, um, I don't. I don't think that there's any priming that I'm aware of. That's that's the text of the question that you that you've just seen there. Um, there are differences by by self-reported class, um, which I can look at. Is there an easier way to flip to the appendix here on the computer? Um, So I do, I do find that um, people who tend to, to say that they're in the sort of bottom half of the social status in society, um, the gender gaps tend to be lower. I think the average is something like 4% for people who would describe themselves in the sort of zero to three range of social group um, compared to 8% um, in, in the sample of the 10 countries that, that includes the question on class. Um, so, I, so there are differences by social class. Um, but I think it's important to note that the gap persists. On average, it's still statistically significant for most countries, um, even when looking at individuals who are, who will say that they are in the lower strata of society. Yeah. Do you cut by race as well? Mm. I haven't done that. No, that's, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I have a question that's not related to the, to the, to the main thrust of the research, but I'm just very curious. When, when, when a country um, um, deploys a, a regulation of incorporating quota, mm -hmm. how, th how well technically do the women do as they are gaining the skills to do something they have never done before, be it in, the, in, the, in politics or otherwise? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, they do tend to be, I've done research before on um, sort of qualifications of women who are elected to these quota laws. Um, and the only difference that I've found is they tend to have less national level experience of politics. That's mm -hmm. why we need the quota, right? Yes. They're just as qualified in terms of their um, experience in local party politics or education, or professional background, etc. So they grow into the position? They um, And when they go into the position, my work finds that they do just as well in terms of proposing bills, showing up to work and to parliament, so their attendance is actually better than their peers. Um, and in terms of the research, I, I can't think of any that shows any differences in that sense. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna try and scroll back to this. Okay, so, um, so I hypothesized that work-family policies and maternal employment is an issue that fits both of these criteria. How does this translate into work-family policies? So there are three main uh, policies I focus on, which are the main ways that states um, handle um, child rearing and support for maternal employment. And these are childcare, parental leave, and um, family allowances. Um, so taking childcare first, there has been research to, sh to show that increases in public childcare also lead to increases in maternal employment, and it makes sense that when the state takes on more of the caring work, that women have more time and resources to engage in the labor market. 
Um, and similarly for parental leave policies, um, these enable women to take a temporary leave um, from the labor market while still maintaining their link. Um, and there you know, certainly are differences about how long that leave should be, but overall the literature suggests that this is also a positive thing for working mothers. So because of that, I <coughs> hypothesize that quotas are gonna lead to more spending on both of these policy issues, which are, in general, tend to encourage maternal employment. Family allowances um, are a little bit different. Um, they are typically the first type of policy that states have um, adopted to deal with maternal employment or to deal with um, sort of family issues, family policies. And they are cash transfers, um, sometimes called child benefits also, that vary by um, the number of children, by the age of the child, they're sometimes means tested. Um, and by and large, scholars have criticized these policies for um, tending to shore up the male breadwinner model. They're typically um, motivated by a concern for fertility rates, um, and allowing women to stay at home, and they certainly um, they lessen the cost of a woman not returning to work. Um, so the literature is kind of mixed on impacts on how this relates to maternal employment, but certainly they don't find increases. Um, and so for this reason, I suggest that quotas are likely to lead to less spending in this policy area on family allowances. And then given that we just saw there are significant cross-national differences, um, in preferences for maternal employment, I hypothesize that these changes are likely to be conditioned by the average size of the, of the gender gap in preferences for maternal employment in the country. Um, so to test this in the quantitative analysis, um, I use OECD social expenditures data, um, which is really neat because you can break down work family policies into these constituent parts. Um, overall spending, childcare, family allowances, and parental leave. And, and overall, um, so, and I look at 22 countries over a period of 31 years. Um, and overall, uh, work family policies make up a little bit less than 2% of GDP across countries and over time, and most of this is composed of family allowances. Um, so the main independent variable is a quota law, which is uh, a binary variable, zero or one, after the quota law is actually implemented and lagged for a year um, to account for the time it takes for any spending changes to occur. Um, the controls are lagged by two years to account for potential post-treatment bias. Um, and at this point, I should say that, you know, these quotas are not uh, randomly imposed across countries, right? So um, the big problem for a causal inference in a study of this nature is that couldn't it be something else um, a general taste for women that's changing, that's driving both the quota adoption and these policy changes that we see. So um, I can't fully account for this problem um, in the with the use of this cross-national data, but I do a couple things to try and alleviate concerns and argue for a causal interpretation of results. Um, the first is that I include a number of controls that are potential confounders of the relationship. Um, and the main one that I'll talk about um, is women in parliament. So I control for the previous share of women in parliament in the country because this is probably the best proxy we have for taste to women in taste towards women in politics. Um, and I'll note that if you take this variable out, um, the effects of quota laws grow stronger. So it, it's an issue with women um, being both uh, a potential confounder and a mediator. Um, and so I do some mediation analysis also, um, which we can look at in the appendix if you're interested. Um, but the effect holds even when, inc when including this variable. Um, I also include a 
broader range of potential emitted variables by including both country and year fixed effects. Um, so this sort of two-way fixed effects analysis uh, is considered a generalization of the differences and differences approach, um, and where you should interpret changes as interpret the results as changes within quota countries. So you look, it's it's essentially uh, meant to treat quota countries as the treated and the other countries which don't adopt um, countries as controls. And you're looking at comparing the changes within the two sets. Um, and I also include um, run a set of placebo regressions where I uh, move the date of the quota law implementation back by uh, a number of years to see if um, we would still see results. Um, and if we do, that suggests that there's some other underlying trend that's driving the results um, and not the quota law itself. Okay, so this figure shows the main results. Um, and rather than including the regression table, I've um, plotted the coefficients and their 95% confidence intervals. Um, and in line with hypotheses, I find that quota laws lead to increases in spending on um, childcare public childcare provision and decreases in spending on family allowances. And so, for example, if a country spent 1% of GDP on childcare provision before quota law, we would expect it to spend 1.06% of GDP on childcare afterwards. And similarly for family allowances, a country that spent 1% before would be expected to spend 0.89% of its GDP on family allowances after the law. I find no significant um, links between quota laws and either parental leave spending or overall work family policy spending. Um, and the finding with results to overall work family policy spending makes sense if we think that these policies actually have different effects on maternal employment. And it also um, suggests, I think, that if we consider the budget to be fixed for work family policies, and certainly budgets have been very constrained um, in recent years and decades, then priorities are shifting after a quota law towards childcare over family allowances. Um, and I think this also suggests um, additional evidence for the fact that we should expect changes that um, aren't to do with overall redistribution, but to do with the composition of, of spending, perhaps. The finding with regards to parental leave, um, I interpret as potentially about relative priorities in that most um, countries now have well-established parental leave policies aside from the United States. And, but there's, there's far more work to be done in terms of public childcare provision. So this is considered to be a much bigger problem, particularly for children aged zero to three um, in a lot of these countries. So if uh, budgets are constrained or women, women in politics have limited leverage, then I would potentially expect them to focus on childcare over parental leave policies. Uh, do you have a sense of the decrease on family allowances? Do you know to what extent is the result of families choosing instead of public child care that becomes available, <coughs> or is it sort of a legislative budgeting, we're going to spend less and families get less? Okay, so I include fertility rates as, um, so that maybe would uh, alleviate that concern about is it just families using these policies less or families having less children, is that what you're? Well, I guess I'm wondering if an individual family who's taking advantage of the family mm -hmm. allowances is experiencing a decrease in their benefits, or if it's an overall decrease in spending on family right. allowances because more people take the public child Right, so I mean, I think you can potentially do both of these things. Um, it depends on the country context and how the policies are structured. Um, but I'll, and I'll talk about this in the case of Portugal. I think it varies by country, but in at least two cases I know of Portugal and France, the way the cuts have been made is to actually cut the top income tiers. Uh, so this is actually cutting beneficiaries, but at the top of the income tiers, uh, rather than cutting overall levels. 
Um, just a quick question about the differential yeah. aid. Just to understand sort of how this works, where does that money get dispersed to? Is it is it to the citizen in terms of tax reduction, or is it to corporations? Is it to companies? How, how does that? Where does that money go? That percentage of GDP? How does it? Um, what's kind of the process of where, it, where that money goes? I think most of these policies are checks sent by the government to the mother. Um, but potentially this can vary by country. So it's like a supplement, a, a state supplement to the parental leave that you might have from your, is it in your paycheck or is it? Um, these these parental leave policies I think are, are carried out by the government in many of these countries. So it's not subsidizing com um, companies to do this? No. It's a direct no. payment to a citizen? That's my understanding. Or a reduction yeah. of tax? Yeah. Sorry, uh, just to add on to that, because I, I didn't read on this before, a lot of them do it through their unemployment insurance right. policy, mm, like funding source. So mm -hmm. it's like the money that, the tax money that would go towards funding parental leave goes to the unemployment insurance office of the government and then it gets redistributed to working for the people who take parental leave out of that. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question exactly how the policy works in different countries, but. Um, checks and typically the mothers. And to, to Rafi's point, sometimes it's not that um, it's tied from a policy framework in the unemployment, but there's a distribution service, so yeah. to speak, and a mechanism already set up. So if mm -hmm. you look around this country, the states that had um, a mechanism already in place, like Rhode Island, um, California, uh, was able to piggyback on that. And in this country, for example, if you look at paid leave as um, the bill was put forward by Kirsten Gillibrand, it would be an additional entity within Social Security, mm -hmm. just because there's already a bureaucratic infrastructure for distribution. Right, so it wouldn't be sent to the companies. No. Right. I mean, certainly there could be examples within your right. set, right. but that isn't something that I've yeah. seen. I think Uh, following um, the uh, greater um, sort of uh, movement in the United Kingdom, I'm talking about mm -hmm. the UK and probably in other European countries, about shared parental care. Mm -hmm. It's not only the mothers who have taken sure. time off, sure. fathers take time mm -hmm. off also in, in looking after the children. How does that impact or would impact any of your findings? Yes, yeah, so this includes all of these. Um, all public spending towards parental leave policies. So maternity leave, paternity leave, parental leave. We, it, it doesn't allow us to distinguish um, how the money's getting spent or who's the beneficiary, but actually I did do analysis using the Comparative Work Family Policy Database, which does include breakdowns of the number of weeks and the level of re, uh, remuneration um, for paternity leave and parental leave. I think paternity leave is still fairly new, um, so I don't think it's well in well covered in that database yet, but um, I see no differences in the findings. So in all of these um, types of dependent variables, whether you look at the weeks of leave, who the leave goes to, how well it's paid, um, quotas are not linked to any changes in that. Um, okay, and this is just a chart um, to show, give you a sense of the relative um, size of spending increases. So um, the change in spending um, per child per year 
in, in quota countries. Um, and you see that in larger welfare states like France, the quota is associated with an additional $500 um, of spending per child per year on child care policies and, and about 400 less or 300 less mm -hmm. on um, family allowances. Um, and in a smaller welfare state like Portugal, where the overall size of social spending is lower and a smaller percentage of that is devoted to childcare and um, work family policies in general, um, the changes are, are much smaller, something along the lines of you know, $50 more on, um, per child per year on, ch on public childcare provision and a little over 100 120 or so less on, on family allowances. Um, on that last, yeah. do you have any insight or perspective why in some countries, like Spain, for example, you see an increase in both, i.e. Mm -hmm. women have additional choices, families have additional choices mm -hmm. in both directions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in Spain is, uh, yeah. Um, I Because I think one can make all kinds of narratives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't have, uh, I haven't looked at the case of Spain in depth, so I don't have a story, a narrative about why those policy changes have been made, um, except to say that in general, the trend for scholars who study work family policies does tend to be in line with my hypotheses and with the general results in that we should focus more on public childcare and less on cash transfers. Um, if we want to encourage maternal employment, but maybe that's not the goal for work family policies um, in a country like Spain. Um, so particularly as you go down the- well, We certainly see economic gap. gains by bringing women into the labor force, which are sort of consistent and, and mm -hmm. undeniable. Mm -hmm. uh, so very interesting, but great yeah. presentation. Please yeah. continue. I'm just yeah. thinking that in the case of Spain that it could be that family policies were so poor yeah. that only, well, I don't know, that yeah. there was like a political decision to increase or in both directions. Right. Because there was no. Right. It'd be interesting yeah. to monitor the expertise of those. It would be. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit more about what exactly happened, at least in the cases of um, Portugal and Italy, at, at the end, if I if I could get there. Um, this is just a chart of marginal effects for. Um, a regression that includes an interaction between the quota law and the average preference gap for maternal employment in the country. So this was related to the last hypothesis, which that was that these effects should be conditioned by the um, average size of the gender gap, sort of appetite for maternal employment in the mm -hmm. country. And these are averages across time as well. So there's no um, time variation in these regressions. Um, and the figure shows, um, consistent with hypotheses, that um, effects are conditioned by the preference gap. So if you look at a country where the preference gap is about um, you know, four percentage points, so like Portugal, for example, um, the average change in overall spending for childcare provision is predicted to be about 0.05. If you move up the preference gap to about a 10 percentage point gap, a country like France or Belgium, then the change is predicted to be much greater, about 0.13 um, percentage point increase in public childcare. And I find the opposite. Uh, for family allowances, again in line with expectations that um, you know when the when the preference gap when the gender gap in preferences for maternal employment is about zero, then you we wouldn't expect any um, any policy change. But very quickly as the preference gap increases, we would expect uh, larger decreases to family allowances. 
Um, and then I'll just talk a little bit about some robustness checks. Um, what happens if we move the data quota implementation back by a number of years? And here I just focus on the two um, variables for which I find significant um, effects, allowances and childcare. Um, and this is really a test that's meant to look for pre-trends in the, in the data and meant to test the fixed effects model um, to make sure the results are just an artifact of that model or picking up some other pre-existing trend. And indeed, I find that when we move the data quota law implementation back by a number of years, um, there are no significant links between quotas and policy changes in this area. This is the same thing. I use a number of thresholds for looking at the five-year period before the quota law is adopted. Um, so really, what this suggests is we are seeing changes only after the quota law has actually been implemented. Um, the results shouldn't be some artifact of the fixed effects model, uh, and they're not due to some pre-existing trend um, in the data. There are a couple other placebo regressions I've included to test the theoretical assumptions um, of my research. So what happens if we look at um, the effect of quotas on issues with no gender gap in preferences? And these are two issues which people might assume there are gender gaps in preferences on, but my um, analysis of survey data did not find significant gender gaps in preferences. Overall, most people agree there should be more government spending on education and old age benefits. There, um, across countries, there are some differences on this, but by and large, these are not statistically significant. Um, differences and indeed I find no significant link between a quota and these uh, policy issues. Um, then I look at issues which are characterized by gender gap. These are two issues with the largest um, gender gap difference besides maternal employment, overall social spending and healthcare for which we have spending data available. And again I find um, that when issues are fairly well situated within the main left-right dimension in politics, um, there's no significant link between quotas and spending in these areas. Yeah. Did you also at any point, which might be far outside the scope of what you looked at, mm -hmm. but did you look at how those individual women elected for quota voted compared to others? I haven't looked at that yet. Um, and that's a good research question. I would expect that to matter more for countries like the United States um, than the countries I'm looking at. because there's such strict party discipline in right. parliamentary democracies that they're mostly gonna vote along party lines. So I would expect most of the impact of actual addition of numbers of women to be at the right, stage before that. Right, it's platform Right, it's negotiating for what they want to get into the party agenda. Um, but I think that type of analysis would be really interesting in countries like Mexico, or even France, maybe. I mean, France still has very strict party yeah. discipline, but, um, but other countries where there are, you know, there is more leeway for individual politicians to vote in their preferences. Um, okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about qualitative data, just a little bit, I think, because I wanna have time for questions. Um, but I did a matched pair case study um, analysis of the cases of Portugal and Italy in order to really explore the mechanisms of what's going on after a quota law, how does this lead to policy changes? Um, this is a most similar systems type of study where I choose I chose the case of Portugal because it implemented a quota law recently in 2009 that allows me really good access to politicians, party members, etc., who were who could speak to how the quotas affected things. Um, and then I used statistical matching to um, match this to um, the case of Italy, which it turns out actually had another proposal for a quota law on the um, on the agenda in 2005, 2006, which failed. Um, so that suggests that it is a country that was likely to pass a quota, um, but it didn't. So what happened if we look at the development of policies before and after? 
in these countries. Um, and I interviewed over 30 um, party leaders, MPs, cabinet members, people um, who, who know about the policy making process in these countries and were able to tell me um, in depth how quotas would affect this. This is a non-random sampling strategy. Um, and then just briefly, what happened in Portugal and Italy? So if you look at a uh, summary of family policy changes from 2009 on, what's first interesting to note is that this is a time of um, major economic recession for both of these countries, so I including major spending cuts that were required. Um, but they handled the family policy um, budget and agenda very differently. They crafted very different policy solutions. So um, Portugal embarked upon a program to build 400 new daycare centers for children aged zero to three and passed a new law requiring um, children to have a right to preschool, right to pre-K from ages four and up. Um, and at the same time, first they raised family allowances for like one year um, in order to help families deal with the crisis. But then they eliminated the allowances for the top two income groups entirely um, by, by 2010, I believe. Italy did the exact opposite, increased family allowances, um, including implementing a number of new um, one-off birth grants, and drastically decreased funding to the regions for childcare. Um, so this, by and large, does confirm my you know, regression findings, um, and it's really interesting because uh, it's, not, it's really interesting to think about what could have caused these divergent approaches within similar countries and the same sort of um, constraints. What can explain um, these differences? So I'm going to focus mainly on Portugal. Um, I'm going to look at Italy a little bit in the end of this study. But looking at the two mechanisms, the first was the number of women in parliament. And I find little evidence that women are actually acting differently in, par in parliament um, in line with what we might think about parliamentary democracies. Most of the legislation that was passed in Portugal was the result of decree laws. They don't go through parliament at all. Um, so, um, but there at the same time was a, a very popular opinion that women have different sort of sensitivity, they're bringing different views to parliament. Um, men and women that I interviewed, the majority sort of brought this up. Um, and women themselves said that they um, often felt like they contributed something different in, for example, committee work, male-dominated committees. Um, and the main evidence I found was that um, Quotas could give women within the party more leverage to push party leaders. So it's not that they were proposing new legislation outside of the party agenda, but um, the quota itself um, and additional numbers of women gave them more leverage. And the best example um, of this is occurred right after the quota law was, was first implemented, after the first election, where the PS women's section, the women's section within the main social democratic party in Portugal, um, very publicly and vocally um, used the quota law to then argue that they wanted more women in, in the cabinet as well. So this was the same prime minister who was elected, um, Jose Socrates, before and after the quota law was in place. He had only 12% of women in his cabinet in the um, period before. They said, look, this is not enough. This is a headline from the, one of the main news heroes in Portugal that says, um, the PS women want a more feminine government. So they made this a very public campaign. Um, this is a quote from the head of the women's section, an increase in the number of female ministers is the next logical step after a parity law. Um, and they were successful. The prime minister um, increased the number of women in his cabinet from 12 to 27%, 29%, in fact, um, which was the largest share of women um, in Portugal's cabinet ever at the time, I think still, possibly still today. 
Um, so this is an example of women using the, their presence, but actually the, the, the salience of the quota law itself to push for more changes. There, as a result, there was a woman who was appointed to be the head of the Ministry for, for uh, Labor, which has responsibility over work family policies. But as I'll discuss, I don't think that actually this one woman was influential in the policy changes that we see. The second uh, mechanism, which I find more support for in the case of Portugal, is issue salience. Um, the idea that party leaders um, are catching on to the salience of these issues after a, a quota um, has been in the public debate um, and using it to claim credit from female constituents. Um, so as I mentioned, um, the female minister who was in charge of work family policies um, didn't really go out on a limb. There was no sort of evidence that she changed the direction of the policies that the PS party already had in place after she was elected. Instead, the PS party had had these um, policy positions in their manifestos for some time, it's, it's, but it's the case that only after the quota law was implemented, they decided to do something about it. So um, what might that be? It's also the case the women's section in the PS party didn't focus on work family policies at the time. So their agenda was about quotas, um, about gender mainstreaming, and uh, I think something to do with reproductive rights. So work family policies were not on their agenda really at all. Um, instead, it seems the party used this opportunity, the salience of women after the quota debate to shift their policies towards more gender-related issues. This is a quote from Augusto Santos Silva, who is currently the foreign minister of Portugal, a longtime party insider for the left-wing party. And he says, the improvement of things associated not with a stereotype, but with real familial life and conciliation between private life and work, like kindergartens and improvement of elementary and preschools, all this social policy was indeed very influenced by this new affiliation of the party to gender-related issues. And in fact, um, we see that the prime minister himself was the public face of these new policies. So he was on the radio, um, TV, inaugurating many of these new centers himself. So this is a picture of him in the gray suit, um, Jose, the prime minister, Jose Socrates, and the minister of labor, um, Helena Andre with the white jacket is standing next to him. Typically she would be the face of these policies, right? But in this case, the Prime Minister himself is the one inaugurating these centers. Um, this is him inaugurating a center in 2010. This is another picture of him inaugurating a center in 2011 where he's about to put his handprint on the nursery wall there. Um, and he even went so far as to call this one of the great reforms of his administration. So he was very much, uh, I think this is evidence that suggests he was very much trying to claim credit for these policies um, himself and for the party. Um, another aspect of issue salience is not so much credit claiming, but a fear of backlash or looking outdated. And particularly, um, party members on the right brought this up, that, oh, now this is kind of expected, and I feel like uh, if I don't say something about this, you know, I, I'll look um, backwards, basically. So, um, yeah, question? Was there any kind of, was it just implicit kind of self-shaming or was it, was it actual, actually more explicit by other parties being like, you guys are backwards or media mm -hmm. being like, you know, yeah. your party is really not as gender so, equal as the rest of the Right, party. so this evidence is based on interview data. So I have what politicians are perceiving of public opinion. I think a great research question is, how do quotas actually affect public, public opinion? Because if we measure it in, for example, media framing, or, but I, I, this is sort of beyond, that's beyond the scope of this analysis. I think my analysis suggests that that effect is occurring. Um, 
And I think your question is also about how like, actually are the perceptions um, translating to elite politicians, which is kind of another study which maybe we, we could use sort of broader survey evidence on. Um, I think another point to note before I move to Italy is that these changes persisted when the government switched to a right-wing government in 2011. So um, despite disagreeing with the cuts to family allowances, they didn't reinstate any of that spending. They continued to um, increase spending on public childcare, including passing the law for universal pre-K for children four and older. And now you see um, in debates in Parliament about work family policies in Portugal, young right-wing women speaking up about, oh, look, our family policy cannot only be about family allowances anymore in order to support the reality of dual career couples in Portugal, we need more spending on public childcare. So that suggests that um, although I find more evidence for this issue salience and the role of party elites um, in the actual policy outcomes in Portugal right now, the longer term effect, particularly for right-wing parties who had less women before, could be about women shifting positions within those parties. Um, okay, and in the case of Italy, I find no similar incentives to shift uh, policy positions or work family policy. So, Work family policies in Italy are still talked about mainly in terms of fertility rather than maternal employment. Um, the women I spoke to, particularly on the left, felt like this is an important issue, we need to do more here, but they essentially get no support from party leaders and, and they made comments that the women's section isn't strong, they um, that there was a commission, so this quote is um, from Cecilia Guerra, who is the former vice minister for the Equal Opportunities Commission, she's a senator, from the left-wing party in um, Italy. She was the chair of the only commission recently that had to do with maternal employment, and that got nixed when the government changed, when Renzi took power, and it wasn't reinstated. And so she's kind of cautiously hopeful here, since back in 2014, that, okay, the Renzi government's promised we're gonna do something about this. Um, we're not done with this question. We must do more here. Um, so essentially, I find that male party elites have no similar incentives to focus on um, women's or work policy, work family policy issues. Um, the other finding, so in summary, I find at this point more evidence for the issue salience mechanism. Um, but I would say also that the mechanisms aren't as distinct as I originally hypothesized, in that um, when we do see women having more leverage to negotiate with party leaders, they're actually using the salience of the quota law itself to do that. And I would expect also issue salience to only increase as women within the parliament become more powerful and are able to speak out about these issues more. Um, and so certainly um, a lot of my future research agenda um, is to do with being able to you know, operationalize and test these mechanisms quantitatively as well. So the effect of quotas on public opinion, issue salience, um, however you operationalize that, and women and women in the cabinet, their effects on policy. Um, so in conclusion, I find that um, this is some initial evidence that they're not just window dressing, that quotas do make a difference to policy outcomes. Um, and that's good news for activists who make this argument, but also, um, you know, more broadly, this is a policy that could help the interests of half the population be better represented, particularly for those issues that aren't already well aligned with political parties. Um, the policy outcome itself is important in its own right. You know, work family policies are one of the only policy, social policy areas that are actually increasing in spending um, in recent years, and I think they're only going to become more and more important as um, women continue to enter the workplace. They're important not just for women, but but all of us, as someone already made the point about parental leave policies. 
Um, and I, you know, I conclude that identity does matter even in this context of parliamentary democracies where it's not so clear that it's just descriptive representation versus substantive representation. But instead, um, you know, identity still matters behind the scenes and how agendas get, um, get set and, and how, priorities, how parties come to prioritize issues. Um, and that the institution of quotas itself can have an important effect, um, a policy <coughs> feedback effect by um, increasing public opinion of the salience of women's is issues, or at least elites' opinion of the public opinion, um, and in turn shape policies. However, there are still many questions left to answer, and some of the ones I'm most interested in is um, how these changes might translate to the lives of real individuals. So my study um, focuses on the concept of maternal employment, but I don't actually test whether these policies um, in the long run will increase um, mothers getting back to work. Um, what happens to women kind of at the 30th percentile, particularly because um, the gender gaps for maternal employment are largest at um, the highest education levels. So are they actually better off? It probably depends on how these policies are structured, um, how spending cuts are made, and how available childcare facilities are to women in the lower class. And, and what are the effects for children? Again, probably depends on the quality of childcare provision that's provided through these policies. And another really interesting question to me is um, how quotas affect policies in other countries. Um, so by, most of Latin America have gender quotas now, but certainly they don't have the same gender gaps on the issue of maternal employment that we see in advanced democracies um, or other social policies. So it's not clear to me how, if at all, we should expect these quotas to affect policy changes in this context. And I think a first step of that would be to, um, to conduct a much better analysis of gender gaps in policy that's all I have for now. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your study and for sharing it with us. I find a lot of resonance in what in your findings uh, with um, something I read yesterday, which brought joy to my heart. Uh, Morocco just appointed nine women cabinet ministers. In a, in, a, in, a cap, in, a, in a total cabinet of 39 ministers. This has happened after they established, of course, two years ago, quota for women to run for parliament and to be in parliament. And where women have very successfully moved the agenda in Morocco uh, towards uh, family uh, issues and social issues, and importantly succeeded as parliamentarians. And they were across the country. They worked in the rural economy as well as they worked in the urban areas. And I think uh, really their success and uh, in the parliament, in the chambers, and in working even in governorates has brought about this outstanding number of nine cabinet ministers and a good position. Yes, ma'am. That's really good news. I'm glad to hear that. That's a, a case I didn't know about, but I'm really interested to learn more about that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your presentation. <clears throat> um, also a good report is in respect of Rwanda in Africa, where there's also a push for a huge number of women representation. And I agree absolutely with your uh, position about the quota system. But my question relates to how women themselves feel about this quota system. Are they positive about this, or do they feel it's not necessary as it could make them as a well-look 
imperial with their male colleagues, maybe in parliament or wherever they are. I don't believe that should be, but I want to understand from the perspective of the women themselves. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of try to follow these debates as they come up. Um, so right now there's a debate in Malta, for example, on a gender quota in the parliament. And you do see women writing in op-eds and in articles about fear of tokenism, that it's patronizing for women. So there is a significant amount of this debate, but from the studies I know of survey data on support for quota laws, before the law is passed, there's been survey data from France and Portugal, um, women overwhelmingly support it. Um, and there is a gender gap there as well in preferences um, along the lines of, I think, sort of 10%. Um, so I, I would say that the majority do support it, although there, there are um, certainly attitudes exactly like the one you just described, that, um, that this isn't the way to move forward. about the role of culture as well in terms of if more collectivist cultures, women who are elected might feel more pressure, you know, mm -hmm. if, if it is in a sense almost tokenism to vote in line with the interests of whatever group that they're part of. So, mm -hmm. you know, feeling more pressure to align with male leaders who may selected them to now be part of the oh, right. party. Right. Um, can you, can you explain what you mean by collectivist culture a little bit more? So when I think of, well, you compared two that were similar that, were, that I would see as more collectivist versus individualist cultures. You mean so within the parliament? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, I think overwhelmingly in parliamentary democracies there's going to be strict party discipline. That's the way politics works. Um, it's probably going to continue to work like that. But there have been examples of um, women coming in and disagreeing with party leaders. Um, and the debate about quotas is one example of this in some countries. So um, the proposal that I mentioned in 2005 in Italy was um, brought to the table by uh, a woman who was a member of Berlusconi's party. Um, she fought men within her party, um, and ultimately she lost. <laughs> it was repealed, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. they brought it back. Yeah. Right, but this is a different actual um, attempt at passing a quota law after that, that first one was repealed. Okay. Uh, but that failed. And and so there can be these incidents of women sort of banding together and, and pushing men within the party, but I think they're very rare. So I wouldn't expect um, much policy change out of those types of uh, movements. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that's a great question. So the, the literature I know on how quotas um, impacts the overall quality of, of, of politicians suggests that it leads to an, an increase in the quality because, um, and this is um, work, it's, I'm thinking of work by Olive Folk and Johanna Rickney who find that um, actually it's mediocre men who kind of fall out of, um, of candidacies. But I think your point about, you know, could we have a trade-off and aren't intersections important too? The working class and gender or race and gender is really important. 
Um, and I think also literature shows that when COIs are implemented, they, they tend to promote white, white women, white educated women. So um, yeah, it's something to watch out for. Did you also interview male politicians in your political part? Yes. And if, and if yes? So not in Italy. Um, Italy was the only country, so I actually did um, in case, case study work in four countries. I'm presenting to here. But Italy was the only country in which I was able to meet with no one from the right wing and no men. Um, and I, I think that it's a very um, opaque political society, political culture in Italy in the first place. But in the other countries, I was able to meet with um, women and men. I think I was able to meet with more men in the context of the, the country passing the quota law, where they, they felt like maybe they had a positive story to tell. Yeah. Just a clarifying question, because the quota laws are new to me. So the quotas, it's just for nominations, mm -hmm. not actually like required seats. Right, right. Okay, so they could potentially have a lot of nominations, but the women could still not get into the yes. parliament. So a good case of that was when France's parity law was first passed. And um, so the mechanisms for how uh, these things are enforced vary by country. And France uh, had a rule that if you didn't abide by the quota, you could pay a fine. So the parties all paid the fine. Um, and the share of women did not increase in the first election after the quota law in France. Over time, that changed. And I think it was to do with the sort of issue salience that I'm talking about. Um, and that parties were shamed for not abiding by the quota in the newspapers. And so gradually, you see um, the share of women increasing even even in those parties who chose to pay the fines. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, were there um, were there significant differences in the countries between like how they said you had to implement the quota? So, um, for example, I was talking to Danielle about this earlier today, but like for example, um, one party in Canada had the rule that when someone, when an incumbent retires or mm -hmm. passes away, then mm -hmm. it has to be replaced, they have to be replaced by a woman. Yeah. Or something like that. that um, versus all nominees have to have like 50% be women or something like Right, that. so yeah, there are differences in the thresholds required, 33%, um, 50% um, in the placement mandate. So do they require that women are every other candidate or every third candidate or not? And in um, the enforcement mechanism. So. If in some countries, um, if a party doesn't comply, they can't present a list, for example, in Portugal. In other countries, they can pay a fine, as in France. That doesn't actually make any difference to my findings. Um, so this looks at sanctions. Um, it, it kind of just, this suggests that maybe strict, strict sanctions is more important for allowances, but overall I find these things, there's sort of no consistent um, effects if you look at the different thresholds placement mandates, et cetera. Um, yeah. Do you mind the um, dates of the quotas in Portugal and, and Italy were roughly, mm -hmm. what, what, were they the same time? The dates of the quota line? You had, those, you had dates before? The timeline? Yeah, the timeline. Yeah. Um, so Portugal, in the quantitative data, Portugal is included for the two years, uh, Italy is included for the two years it had a quota. 
1994 and 1995 only, and then it was repealed. And then I I put it back in the data as a potential match for Portugal because it no longer had a quota. And after that quota was repealed um, in 95, the share of women immediately went down to its pre-quota level. Um, and actually, so 95, I'm looking at the fertility rate at the same time because I thought that mm-hmm. I thought that it had that going on, but it. So which yeah. when did it go? And then there was a proposal in Italy in 2005, sort of 2006, which failed, which was the same time as the proposal in Portugal, which passed. So I argued that these are good matches. Um, and then Italy has subsequently passed a quota again. But subsequent to? To this time period, to, to, to the study, period. yeah. Because Italy's, Italy's fertility rate went going up after 2000, whereas Portugal's going down. down. Right. But, but it, yeah, it doesn't match then. It's interesting, it, it's perceived to be a big problem in both countries. Is that right? I yeah. know that um, Mary Winters data was Yeah. I'd like us all to thank Anna Kellogg for a great presentation. Please join us next week when Medina Ajinar, Assistant Professor of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, will be presenting on intersectionality and women's health, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, and cervical cancer screening.